Section six of Edward the Third by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. First decade, chapter two. From the first invasion of Scotland to the commencement of the French War, part two. The immediate result of the Battle of Halidon Hill was the surrender of Berwick Tower and town to the invaders. Berwick remained thenceforward an integral part of the English dominion, the only territorial trophy of Edward's Scottish victories which was never lost. It was therefore invested with the peculiar interest and importance as representing the English claims to the sovereignty of Scotland. It had its own officers of state like a separate kingdom, and its exceptional position is commemorated in the heading of Acts of Parliament, declaring them to be in force in England and in the town of Berwick-on-Tweed. Edward wrote to the archbishops and bishops directing that thanks should be offered up to God for this great victory, and having received the homage of the Scotch nobles and placed Balliol at the head of a force sufficient to confirm and extend his conquests, returned to England. Balliol was at once acknowledged by the Scotch Parliament assembled at Edinburgh, and many of the nobles swore fealty to his crown, though they hated him in their hearts, as the creature and delegate of the hereditary enemy of their country, and as the instrument, if not the author, of her degradation. For now, in 1334, the fairest provinces and the strongest fortresses of Scotland, Dunbar, Roxburgh, Edinburgh, and the whole kingdom south of the Forth, were ceded to Edward and declared to be forever annexed to the English monarchy, while Balliol had to do liege homage to the English crown for that portion of Scotland over which he was allowed to remain the titular king. The exasperation of the proud and patriotic inhabitants of Scotland may be imagined at this consummation of the national disgrace. It is true that at the close of the preceding century, Scotland had become by right of conquest a dependency of the English crown, but since that time the victory of Bannockburn, the good and wise reign of Robert Bruce, and, above all, the recent formal acknowledgment of the independence of Scotland by the Treaty of 1328, had obliterated the conquest of 1296. The struggle which ended at Halidon Hill had been for dominion on the one side and independence on the other, and the worse had triumphed over the better cause. Unable to bring an army into the field, the adherents of the national cause harassed the new government by incessant petty insurrections. Sir Andrew Murray of Boswell, a man of courage and capacity, now regent in the name of the exiled king, got the better of Balliol's forces in many small but important actions. The French assisted the struggling party with men and money, and with ships which hovered round the coast and cut off the supplies sent from England— till at last Balliol, twice a king and twice a fugitive in less than two years, was glad in 1335 to find refuge within the English border, and the adherents of the Bruce once more seized upon the reins of government. Again and again did Edward journey in person to the north at the head of an army, in the vain hope of shoring up the tottering edifice of anti-national royalty. Truce upon truce was made and no sooner made than broken by fresh uprisings of an irrepressible spirit of independence. The country was wasted by the invader far and near, 
and no open resistance attempted, but day after day found Edward farther than ever from the conquest of the Scottish soil, and more and more an object of detestation to the Scottish people. Till a crisis occurred in another quarter, which demanded all the warlike resources of England, and recalled her king, chafed, sullen, and reluctant to his own dominions. The war in Scotland had assumed a chronic character, and still lingered on, stimulated and embittered by the indirect influences of a mightier struggle. But its course was not marked by events of grave importance, and King Edward III was not able again to invade Scotland in person for twenty years to come. For now the two foremost and most powerful nations of Europe were about to engage in a contest in which the best blood of both was to be spilt, furious passions evoked, and the seed sown of imperishable animosities for the sake of a selfish object impossible of attainment, and equally fatal to the interests of both peoples had it been attained. Hostilities between England and France had been imminent toward the close of the last reign. The French army had indeed withdrawn from the actual occupation of the English territory of Aquitaine, but an agreement respecting the restoration of the Agenois not having been fulfilled, war was about to be declared between the two nations when the deposition of Edward II changed the policy of England. It will be remembered that one of the earliest acts of Edward III's Council of Regency was to send an embassy to Charles IV of France to negotiate a treaty of peace, a principal condition of which was the restoration to England of certain lands recently seized in Aquitaine. But on the death of King Charles in the February of 1328, Edward laid claim to the sovereignty of the whole realm of France, and thus gave the first challenge to an international duel which lasted with intervals of breathing time for a hundred years. Among the many evils which Queen Isabel of unhappy memory brought upon the English people, the most fatal and far-reaching in their consequences were those which owed their origin not to her fault, but to her misfortune in standing in the line of succession to the throne of France. King Philip IV, the fair, dying in 1314, left three sons who became successively kings of France, Louis X, called Utin, or the Quarrelsome, Philip V, called the Long, and Charles IV, surnamed like his father, the Fair. Louis died after a reign of two years only, having had no children but a daughter, Joan, afterwards, in her own right, Queen of Navarre. His wife, however, was at the time of his death, expecting her confinement, and shortly afterwards gave birth to a boy who was called John I in his cradle, but survived for nine days only. Then Philip the Long, who had already been appointed guardian of the realm, ascended the throne, but he again, dying without a male heir, was succeeded by the third and last brother, Charles, who also died, leaving daughters only, in the year after Edward III's accession. Upon this occurrence, Queen Isabel of England, the mother of Edward III, was the sole survivor of that generation, the children of Philip the Fair. Now had the law of succession been the same in France as it has been for many centuries with us, Joan, the daughter of Louis Houtin, would have reigned before her uncles Philip and Charles, and of course in priority of right to her aunt Isabel, Queen of England. In France, however, 
The succession was, and had been from time immemorial, regulated by the Salic law, which excluded females from the throne. In the case of Louis Hutin's daughter, the states of the realm, by a solemn decree, had affirmed the principle of the Salic law by excluding her and declaring that all females were forever incapable of succeeding to the crown of France, 1328. This disqualification on the part of Joan, now Queen of Navarre, and on the part of his own mother, Edward, did not deny. He admitted the view that the kingdom of France was too great for a woman to hold by reason of the imbecility of her sex, but his contention was that though a female could not herself succeed, she could transmit the right of succession to her male offspring, and he therefore maintained that he, as the eldest son of Isabel, was in default of direct male issue, the rightful heir to the French crown. Four years indeed after this date, the Queen of Navarre, Louis Hutin's daughter, gave birth to a son, who subsequently bore the well-deserved title of Charles the Bad, and whose claim was undoubtedly superior to Edward's, even from his own point of view. But now in 1328, on the death of the last undisputed king of France, and the birth of a posthumous daughter of that monarch, Edward was in a position to urge, as he did, not long afterwards, in a forcible letter to the Pope, that he was the nearest male in blood to the deceased sovereign to whom he was related in the second degree, whereas Philip of Valois, the only other claimant in the field, stood in the third degree of consanguinity. Meanwhile, the twelve barons of France, acting as the highest authority of the kingdom in an interregnum, had decided and declared that the crown devolved upon Philip of Valois as the first cousin of the late king. Thus the royal dignity passed out of the direct line of the descendants of Hugh Capet, who had transmitted it from father to son for three hundred and forty years. Edward's view of the case was supported by his own parliament and by many disinterested authorities at the time, and even received the sanction of some French jurists. But there can be little or no doubt that his claim was altogether untenable, being opposed to traditional usage, recent decisions, and finally to the wishes of the French people. It would seem from subsequent events that he had no present intention of doing more than placing it upon record, but we may observe here the first example of that halting, uncertain, double-handed policy which throughout his reign characterized the whole of his transactions with the French kings. While maintaining an outward attitude of amity towards France, he took measures for fortifying the Channel Islands, negotiated with the Duke of Brabant for the hire of mercenary troops, and wrote to his seneschals in Aquitaine, telling them that it was his full intention to recover the heritage of his mother by all means in his power, and engaged them secretly to enlist certain Gascon nobles on his side by promising them indemnity for any risks which they might run. Philip, in all probability, had no suspicion of the existence of a counterclaim to his throne, and thought of the young king of England only as a liege man, owing homage to himself as feudal suzerain of the English fiefs in France. At the time of his accession, however, he was not in a position to stir up any dangerous questions, for he found himself involved in a war with the Flemings, whose sovereign, Count Louis, having been expelled by his subjects, 
had sought the French king's protection and assistance in recovering his rights in 1328. Now Philip hated the Flemings because he was at heart a selfish and narrow-minded aristocrat, and could not bear that a trading community, relying on their prosperity, wealth, and intelligence, should dare to show a will of their own or entertain ideas of political liberty. He therefore espoused the cause of the exiled prince, and gladly availing himself of the first opportunity of calling all his vassals together under his authority, he marched against the Flemings, determined to teach them and through them his own dependence, that merchants and tradesmen were no match for knights and nobles in the field. The sturdy plebeians, notwithstanding, were very near giving to the chivalry of France a lesson quite different from what they expected, but after a gallant stand-up and long doubtful fight near the town of Cassel, they were defeated with terrible slaughter and compelled to receive back their banished sovereign. Having achieved this triumph, Philip, on his return to his dominions, sent by Roger, abbot of Fécon, afterwards Pope Clement VI, a message to King Edward, commanding him to repair to France and do him homage for the fief of Guienne. This summons was subsequently repeated, and then before returning an answer, Edward, according to his wont, submitted the question to a parliament assembled at Westminster in February 1329, at which it was decided probably under the influence of Mortimer, whose interest it then was to preserve the peace, that the king should obey the citation. It would seem, however, that a secret protest was placed on record that his claim to the crown of France was not in any way compromised by his consenting to do homage for his duchy. The cathedral at Amiens was the place fixed upon for this high ceremonial, the king of France received his vassal seated on his throne in a blue velvet robe of state, sprinkled with golden fleur-de-lis, his crown on his head and his scepter in his hand, and surrounded by a brilliant assembly of reigning kings and sovereign princes, his feudatories, and all the great nobles of his realm. It was an occasion for pomp and splendor, and Edward, nothing loath, for he loved display, and had come over with a gorgeous retinue and a thousand richly caparisoned horses, now entered and stood before King Philip to do his homage in a robe and train of crimson velvet, with the English leopards embroidered on them in gold, his crown on his head and golden spurs upon his heels. Then, inclining his body toward the throne, he said in a loud voice, Philip, King of France, I, Edward, by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, and Duke of Aquitaine, do hereby become thy man, to hold the Duchy of Guienne as Duke thereof, and the Earldom of Pontieux and Montreuil as Earl thereof, and as Peer of France, in like manner as my predecessors did homage for the said Duchy and Earldom to thy predecessors. But King Philip, when he called together his subjects and subject princes to witness the ceremony, had looked for a more submissive form of commendation, as it was called, than this, and told his chancellor to let his liegemen know that the manner of his predecessors was to put off the crown and lay aside the sword and do homage with their hands between the French king's hands, then and there promising fealty and homage to the king of France as their sovereign lord. This Edward refused to yield, but in the meantime, until the records of precedent could be consulted, 
he agreed to a compromise, and when the oath was tendered to him, he answered, Voir, so be it, placing his hands between those of the French king, while the latter, in accordance with the prescribed form of the feudal system, kissed him on the mouth. End of section 6